This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so this week we're going to head down to Georgia. Hopefully the devil doesn't steal our souls. Well, I'm certainly going to lay some rubber down the Georgia asphalt if it doesn't. <laughs> okay, that's enough of the unfunny country music jokes. Hey, we, th- we got the top two that we have and now we can move on from it. At least we made them. We got them out of the way now. <laughs> yep. So before we get started on this week's case, we're going to take a little break to hear from our sponsor this week, CrimLawOC.com. Did you get a DUI on New Year's or punch your in-laws in the face at Christmas dinner? Visit our favorite criminal defense attorneys, Dallas and Jonathan, at CrimLawOC.com. That's C-R-I-M-L-A-W-O-C.com. All right. So in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Jermeka Yvonne Whitehead, who goes by Nikki. Nikki was a 34-year-old mother, and she was a hairstylist, and she lived in Conyers, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. And from what I've heard, it's actually a pretty nice place. Yeah. It's where Dakota Fanning and Elle Fanning are from. I don't know who Elle Fanning is, and I know Dakota Fanning. I don't know where she's from, though, but that's wonderful. They're actresses. Oh. I don't know who they are either. I saw it on Wikipedia. (laughs) Thanks to our show sponsor, Wikipedia, for, (laughs) for that. So Nikki had a rough start in life. She was born in jail while her mom was serving time on a drug charge. So she was mostly raised by her grandmother, Della, who was not what you would call a disciplinarian by any stretch. Yeah, and because Della wasn't much of a disciplinarian, Nikki kind of ran wild. And by 17, she was already pregnant. And she wasn't just pregnant with one baby. She was pregnant with twins. And she would give birth to Tasmia Janisha and Jasmia Kanisha in November of 1993. And after the twins were born, they still continued to live with Della, Nikki's grandmother. When Nikki was 25, she met a man named Robert at the mall. And they started dating and fell in love. And she eventually moved in with Robert. Yeah, but Robert was 30 years older than her. Yeah. And he was a long haul truck driver that was gone a lot. So he lived in like a nice neighborhood and had a good house and she moved in with him. But he was gone all the time, which really kind of seemed like it worked out pretty well for Nikki. About 10 years later, her twins, Taz and Jazz, which is what we're going to call them because Grant cannot get their names right. I can't. I kept trying. Sorry. I, I worked really hard and I finally got it, but I can't do it all episode. Yeah. Taz and Jazz. Yeah. So they are living with Robert and Nikki. At this point. And they kind of went back and forth between Nikki and Della's house over the years. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But Robert was away for work on January 13th, 2010. And Taz and Jazz woke up a little late for school. And they just hurried off and went to school. And it was a normal Wednesday. Just like today. Except Nikki was supposed to go to work. But she didn't show up. Which was a little concerning. Because I'm sure you being a hairdresser. You know, you can only imagine not showing up to work with a full book of business ready to go for the day. Yeah, that would be 
probably quite a mess at her salon. Yeah, and I'm sure like you'd be getting calls and texts left and right finding out, hey, where are you? You know, you've got people showing up. Yeah. So later that afternoon, Taz and Jazz came home from school and found their mother, Nikki, dead in her bathtub. When the police got into the house, it was such a mess. There was blood everywhere. It was obviously a very violent attack. And Nikki had fought hard. It was obvious that she had fought back and she was trying to you know, survive, but she was beaten and stabbed and then was eventually left in the bathtub for dead. Yeah. So the police are pretty convinced at this point that it was a crime of passion and not just a random attack because of how violent it was. So this is a horrible scene. The police wanted to get the twins out of there and back to the station to get their statements. So they put them in a car and headed back to the station and the twins were a mess in the car. They were crying and sad and one of them was even biting her own arm like really hard and the cops were like hey the fuck are you doing and yeah. <laughs> yeah and she explained to them that she does that when she's really upset that it's kind of like a nervous tick or something and it's like oh that's seems like a painful habit but okay well yeah it sounds like self-harm which you know is a sign of some mental health struggles so yeah you know yeah, so she's obviously very upset. And when they got back to the station, the police interviewed the girls, and they when they kind of found out that Nikki was dating another guy named Joe, so she had a second boyfriend. And Joe was a barber who worked in the shop where Nikki's salon was. Worked near it. Well, yeah, they worked near it, and they found out that Nikki and Joe actually had gotten into an argument the night before, and... That was kind of their first lead into maybe what had happened to her. Yeah. So they bring Joe in and start asking him questions and he is devastated. And they check his hands and his arms, you know, because obviously Nikki fought back hard. So whoever attacked her is going to have some pretty significant injuries. And he was clean. He had no marks, nothing on his body, and he had a solid alibi. So... They cleared him. And because of that, police moved on to Robert. The one that she was actually living with was her longtime boyfriend. And they started looking at him because the girl said that he had found out about Joe and was really upset about it. And when they start to look at Robert, he was all the way on the other side of the country. You know, he was a long distance truck driver. So yeah. he couldn't have done it. He was out of the area. And he, at that point, had already known about Joe. They kind of had sort of an agreement of kind of what was going on. Yeah, apparently their relationship was kind of like when he was home, they were together and she was, he says, the love of her life and she did everything for him, cooked his favorite meals, like they were very happy. But he knew when he was gone for long periods of time that she kind of did her own thing. Like it was just like an agreement they had. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> That's it not, is, but not. I mean, she was 30 years younger than him. That's true too, you know, so yeah, I guess I can understand and. You know, so it's already not the most common of a, of a relationship. So I guess, you know, it leads to less common boundaries. Yeah. So both boyfriends are totally devastated and totally not involved. And that's when the police start looking into the family more. And what they uncover is kind of dysfunctional and troubling. Yeah, to say the least, you know, we already know Nikki had some kind of, of a troubled past, but it goes down the entire family line. She was a young mother and... You know, she was living off and on with her grandmother, Della, who was also helping raise her twin girls. But she was sort of coming in and out of their lives and she wasn't consistently around, too. So so the twins were being raised by her grandmother, mostly their great grandmother, which right. 
as we kind of learn, everybody in this family has children very young. So though she's a great grandmother, she's not like a 90 year old great grandmother. Right. Yeah. So the twins were described as sweet, you know, straight A students, Girl Scouts, just a pleasure to be around. They were beautiful. You know, they obviously grabbed attention anyways because they're identical twins. So when you're out in public and their hair is perfectly done and they're perfectly dressed and, you know, they're like the same. Yeah. And their mom's (laughs) a hairstylist. Like, come on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they're living with Della and everything. And this seems to be going okay. They, like I said, they're described as sweet kids. But as Nikki got older and more stable, you know, after she moves in with Robert and she lives in a nice home and all this stuff and she's working full time and she starts to kind of clash with Della a little bit about how the girls are being raised because Nikki didn't want them to make the same mistakes that she had growing up in a house with no rules. She saw the girls going down the same path she went and she didn't want that. Right. And she was raised by the same person. So, you know, she was able to see like, hey, I've been down here. I see the path they're going down. I went down it. She's trying to reel her girls back in. Right. And put some boundaries and some discipline on them. So that's when they come to live with her and Robert around 2007. And like I said, her and Robert lived in a nice home in a gated community. It was a good school district. They thought this was going to be a really good shift for the girls. But by this time, the girls were 13, 14 years old and used to kind of doing whatever they wanted. They were running wild. And so it was a struggle. Nikki tried laying down the law, but they fought back and they were sneaking out, fighting physically with her. Their grades dropped. They lost interest in all their extracurriculars like dance and ballet, all of that stuff, sports. I heard they were even in ROTC at one point, too. So, I mean, that you would think they'd get some discipline there, but... I also heard where they went to high school, that ROTC program wasn't as disciplined as, you know, what you typically think of ROTC being. Right. Which is why Nikki and Robert thought it would be a good change because the schools in the district that they lived in were, you know, a little bit better. And, you know, they just thought it would be a good change for the girls to kind of go down a better path. Yeah. And it sounds like it would have been if had they been open to it and, you know, right. not had some more structure, honestly, yeah. because they weren't used to it. They were used to doing their own thing. And, you know, when someone tried to lay down the law, it was really hard to do. Right. And that's why it was tense. I mean, there was a lot of tension. It was very tense. I mean, even in 2008, there was a 911 call that came in. Nikki had tried to take the cell phone away from one of the twins and the twins both attacked her physically. And when the cops showed up, the girls were arrested and on assault and battery charges. That's why the family ended up in juvenile court. Yeah. And this was the beginning of the back and forth between Della's home and Nikki's home because the court asked Nikki if she wanted her girls back. And she said no, because she was scared of them. She wanted them to get counseling or something. But instead, the court was just like, all right, and sent them back to live with Della. And Nikki didn't want that either because she was like, hey, this is why they're out of control, you know, and she tried to repair her relationship with them and try to get them back. Like, look, I've been through all of this. I don't want you to go through what I went through. Like, I'm trying to be a mom and that's why I have to be so hard on you. But it just turned into kind of a big custody battle. Yeah, and that custody battle went on for the next few years, and the girls continued to live at Della's and just run wild. Yeah, you know, and the family was ordered by the courts to do take counseling together and separately, and to try to mend these relationships. But honestly, it wasn't going any better because by 2010, the courts decided that the twins weren't doing any better at Della's. Like 
They hadn't made any progress. And this kind of makes sense. Like they're court ordered to go to these programs, but are they really given their best efforts into them? They don't really want to be there. So right. They're not participating fully. Right. And these girls are kind of doing everything and getting away with everything at at Della's. You know, they're shoplifting, smoking weed, running the streets. They're dating older guys. And the court ruled in Nikki's favor that the girls should go back to living with them because they would probably be better off. Yeah. So the courts decided that Nikki's home was more structured and would have more rules and keep them in line because obviously it's not like when they went back to Della's, all of a sudden they turned back into great, perfect little kids. They were getting into trouble big time. So the girls protested this decision in open court. And Jazz even said, if I got to go back home with you, I'm going to kill you. But the judge thought they were empty threats. And he ruled that the girls were going to go back and live with their mom for a two-week trial period. Pretty ominous. But a week later, Nikki was dead. So obviously the investigators are seeing red flags and looking into the girl's story immediately because of already what's gone on in their past. And what Jazz said not long before. Right. And the girl's story said that they had missed their bus that morning and they had walked to school and that they were a couple minutes late for school, but they made it. They made all of their classes. You know, they they were where they were supposed to be. But when police checked the school surveillance tapes and surveillance tapes from a gas station, they found that the girls actually had hitched a ride to the school. They didn't walk, but they were over two and a half hours late. So not what they said. Yeah, so their story wasn't lining up, and the investigators were starting to wonder why they would lie about their story that morning. So the bite marks on their arms that were photographed were sent off to be examined, and the blood and DNA evidence from the house was also sent to the lab. And they also started to look back at their interviews with a suspicious eye. The twins acted the part. They were praying, crying, and whimpering. But there was things that just didn't jive. And even the initial investigators in the interview saw red flags, like the fact that the girls were wearing long sleeves and gloves in their interview is what made the investigators tell them to take their gloves off, roll their sleeves up, and take pictures of their arms because that was weird. Right. And police kind of knew, too, that if there had been a struggle, there probably would have been some marks on the attackers as well so right they're starting to kind of put the pieces together but one of the things that didn't really jive well with the police too was as the police were leaving they said hey do you need anything and one of them asked to put csi on in the interview room for them to watch which doesn't seem like you know the choice you would pick right there while you're getting interviewed for a murder well it's kind of interesting that they would even think that they wanted to watch tv in a police interview room And then the choice of television show was a little awkward, considering their mother was just murdered. Right, exactly. Another thing, though, that caught the police off guard was when they started asking the twins about their mom, Nikki, they kind of spoke negatively about her, even though they Yeah, she had just died. Yeah, and even though they were, like, playing the part and they were looking directly into the camera and crying and praying and all this stuff, when they were asked specifically about their mom... They kind of were talking shit like it was a the tone didn't match. It was very off tone. Yeah, it's not what you would expect two girls who are saying, oh, we love our mom to we're so sad she's gone to start talking negatively about her and how she's a hypocrite and how she, you know, does these things that she tells them not to do and things like that. So right, because that's their biggest argument is that they're not doing anything that their mom didn't do at their age. And so they don't respect her enough to not do it. You know, because they're like, well, you did it. Why can't we? 
So while all the evidence is being gathered and gone through and examined and looked through, the girls attended their mom's funeral and they went back to living with their great grandmother, Della. And really, they just kind of went back to their old lives as they were. Went back to school. They went to prom that year. And a few months later, when the evidence all came back, investigators got confirmation of what they were kind of starting to suspect. And there was DNA and blood evidence that put the girls as the murderers of their mother. Yeah. And the DNA is interesting because they're identical twins. So it wasn't possible to tell which girl's blood or DNA was at the scene or both. Because they found bloody shoes in a shoebox in the back of their closet. And the bite marks on their arms came back to a match for Nikki. The final really solid piece of evidence was a hair found in between Nikki's teeth that matched the girls. Now, obviously, it's not possible to tell which girl. That's so nuts to me. So, so nuts to me that one of their hairs was found in between her teeth. Yeah, because she fought back. Right, I know. But that's just so crazy that... She had one of their hairs just in between her teeth. Like, it's just crazy. And like we said, there's no way to know which girl because they're identical twins. So their DNA is the same. Right. But on the last day of school in May of 2010, four months after Nikki's murder, her twin daughters, Jazz and Taz, were arrested for her murder. And once they were in the cop car, they were no longer sweet and innocent and sad. They were arrogant as you can get. They were talking. Say it. You know you want to. Say it. You know you want to. They were arrogant as fuck. There we go. That's the Erica. They were talking so much shit on the cops about how they were talking about stuff like, why aren't we going anywhere? Because they're eating coffee and donuts. They don't have shit on us. They can't arrest us for this. Like, they thought for sure they got away with this because it had been four months. Yeah. They were already back to living their old lives, going to prom, doing their normal stuff. Like, yeah, they thought that they had gotten away with it. Yeah. So their arrests hit the media big time. It was a big story because kids don't usually kill their moms. That's very rare. In any sense, like even in like natural, you know, settings, nature, like the your mom is not who people generally kill. And when you do, it tends to be men who end up killing their moms. I was so, just going to say the, the likelihood that it's a daughter killing their mother is very low. Exactly. So. And usually... There's some sort of abuse involved, which we're going to get into in a little bit here, but there doesn't seem to be any physical abuse from Nikki to her daughters that was ever reported. And the girls still proclaimed their innocence for a long time, even after they were arrested, but they eventually asked the DA for a plea deal, and the DA wanted to hear what their version of the story was, and the story that the girls landed on was that their mother attacked them with a red vase and then a kitchen knife because they woke up late for school and she was mad and trying to get them out the door and pissed off. And they say they fought back and they killed her. And while she was dying, they put her in the bathtub to keep her warm, which I don't think makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, they went for it. Yeah, this story is not true because she had at least 45 stab wounds and her spinal cord was like severed. So she fought hard, and based on the blood trail, she even got away at one point and ran out the door to a neighbor's home and was banging on the front door of the neighbor's house and then was dragged back into the house. So this story doesn't make a whole lot of sense that she attacked them because at that point she was running from them. 
So the same thing with the tub story. The investigators say the evidence shows that she was dead before she was put into the tub. And she was put into the tub to wash evidence off, not to keep her warm as she was dying. Another piece that really was very damning for the girls was the police found journals that were in their bedrooms. And it's notes back and forth between the two of them talking about how they have to get rid of their mother. And so this isn't looking very good for the girls. And the DA has a really good case for premeditated murder, obviously. Yeah. The DA was also, though, really worried about going to trial with this because they were afraid that Nikki's past, obviously, was going to drag the case down and it was going to drag her name through all the mud and the jury would end up being very sympathetic to these girls. And again, they're 16, so they're very young, they're very pretty. They would come across sweet and innocent. So the DA obviously decided that it was probably in their best interest to go with the deal and... The twins pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter, and each of them received a 30-year sentence with the possibility of parole. And they were eligible for parole for the first time in 2017, only three years after they were convicted. But obviously they were denied. What do you think about that? What do you think about a 30-year sentence for two twin girls who killed their mom with knowing the backstory of this, all of this? What are your thoughts on that? I go back and forth because I know there's a lot of family history here and a lot of deep-seated generational trauma, all of that stuff. I get that. But I do go back and forth because I feel like this was very premeditated. This wasn't in the heat of the moment they snapped because of the troubled life they'd had and they killed their mom and then they were remorseful about it. Like, they planned this and... They don't seem to be very remorseful. So the whole voluntary manslaughter thing bothers me. I think they should have been convicted of murder. Do you think 30 years is a proper sentence for 16-year-old girls? And girls doesn't matter, just 16-year-olds. Yeah, I don't think it's too much, that's for sure. I don't think they should be eligible for parole anytime before that. Because even if they serve all of their 30 years, they're going to be like 45 when they get out. Like, they're going to still have a lot of life to live. Did you see that I think Jasmia asked the court, too, that when she got out to have this expunged from her record and that was denied? Yeah. I go back and forth on it because I don't know what the likelihood of them hurting somebody else that isn't in their family. Like, I don't know the the numbers on that. You know, like, if they, if they can kill their mom, are we all fucked? Or Yeah. Like, I don't know what the numbers are on that. So I'm not sure. That I like that they're eligible for parole already. But I'm also not sure that you just lock away, you know, lock up 16 year olds and throw away the key when they did have a very troubled past. Yeah, exactly. And my thoughts on it are these kids are dealing with a lot of generational trauma and it starts at least at Della. I don't think we know too much more into her past, but from what I've been able to find out, every generation kind of comes into wanting to take over being that mom role at around 12 years old, including Nikki's mom, who, when she was out of jail, came out. Nikki was about 12, and she wanted to jump into that. Um, And I think it's a really hard place to start. Right. It is. I mean, they've had 12 years of being raised by somebody else by the time you decide you want to be a mom. And it's really hard, too, when you, you know, you've had this lax lifestyle to come in and then you want to someone wants to come in and be an authoritarian. You want to fight back. I understand that, you know, totally. But I think there's a lot of mental health issues that come to light here because this isn't a normal thing. And though there is generational trauma, you know, throughout this entire family who this family obviously just 
thrives in chaos, you know, with everything going on. Well, multiple counselors in this case have said that every single generation of this family, all four generations that were involved in all of this counseling, thrive on drama and chaos. Yeah. Like, that was their normal. Yeah, it's obvious. And I think it's really hard to punish these girls to a prison sentence when they were never given the tools because the people who were raising them, I don't think, had the tools either on how to cope and how to handle adversity and things like that. So I think it's really hard. I think these girls need more rehabilitation. But on the other side of it, they killed their mom. Like, that's... Yeah, it doesn't matter what kind of life you've had, you know... You don't kill your mom. Like, you don't kill anybody. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I think that they need more help than they do incarceration. I I wish they had gotten more help. And it sounds like the girls, as far as, you know, continuing, they've gotten their GEDs in in school or in uh, prison. So, like, they're still continuing, but they're not remorseful at all over killing their mom. And that's what I think, for me, is like... That's the hard part, for sure. Yeah. They're not even saying, like, we were out of control teenagers whose hormones were going crazy. Our mom tried to control us and we snapped and killed her and we're so sorry about it. They like haven't, I don't know. They don't seem to be upset about it. They just really hated their mother. I don't think they were set up and have continued to be set up to be in a place to be able to admit that stuff. It's not like when they go to jail, they're actually getting, you know, mental health treatment. Right. That's the other thing that I go back and forth on is they did get mental health treatment before this happened and it still happened. So sometimes I think people are just born bad. Well, we touched on that, too, that like they went because they were court mandated and they each thought the other person was the problem. Nobody took ownership for what their own problems were. They the girls went to say, hey, our mom's a hypocrite. She did these things. She did those things. We're trying to do them. And she says we can't. And Nikki's saying, I did those things. You, you know, you can't do them more of a do as I say, not as I do. And she's still, you know, partying, running around and doing things like out with other men. Like she's doing the same things the twins are doing, but she's telling them, hey, you can't do this. And they're going, why? You're not, you're doing it. You're not setting a good example. Yeah. Everybody's pointing fingers in counseling instead of, instead of taking ownership for what they've done wrong and fixing it. Like, you can't go to counseling to fix somebody else. Like, when you go to counseling, it's to work on yourself. That's the only thing you can control. Like, counseling is never going to go to work if you go to counseling going, I'm going to fix my husband. Yeah, exactly. You have to be there to fix yourself. You can't control anybody else. So you have to be there to accept what you're doing and being willing to fix it and change it. And I think until somebody in this family is willing to accept that generational problem, and put an end to it, it's just going to keep happening. Yeah. And what's really sad is it feels like that's what Nikki was trying to do. She was like, I don't want my girls to go through what I went through. We didn't talk a lot about Nikki's mother, Linda, but she was actually involved and she's on Nikki's side. She thought the same thing about Della. She wanted the girls to have more discipline too. She disagreed with how her mother was raising or her grandkids. So, right. you know, there it was kind of a, a divide in the family between yeah. Nikki, her mom, and stepdad. And Della and the twins. And even to this day, Della says like, oh, I can't believe my babies would do that. Like, I can't believe, you know, like Della still still puts money on their books in prison. And she talks about how she's so proud of them for graduating high school. And then you see interviews with Linda and she's like, they only got 30 years for killing my daughter. Like, I don't care that they're my grandkids. Like, they killed my baby. And they only got 30 right. years and they're already eligible for parole. So there is a big divide in this family on what there's a divide in 
everybody that hears this story on what they think the sentence should be and what they think the punishment should be. Yeah, the grandmother needs to take ownership too and say they don't need incarceration. They need mental health treatment. They need actual treatment. But again, they have to want to accept it too. So it's, you know, it's a vicious cycle until somebody takes ownership of it and can control it. Yeah. So that is the really disturbing case of Jermeka Yvonne Whitehead, who goes by Nikki. Thankfully, she goes by Nikki because Grant would have never been able to say Jermeka 57 times. I could probably get away with Jermeka. It was just the rhyming of those two words, Tasmia Janish and Jasmia Kanisha. Yeah. Did I do it? Yeah. Oh, see? I got it. It took me a while. It really did. You struggled with it. that so hard. I know. I, they just, they rhyme and they're just so fluid. I, I just could not flip those letters around that quickly. Yep. So anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. So if you guys have any thoughts on this case or if you think that sentence was fair or just or unfair or unjust, visit us on Instagram at From Crime to Crime and tell us all about it. We're starting to pick up on Twitter, too. So you can visit us there at, at From Crime, the number two crime. That's normally where I am. So if you want to just see what I'm doing, that's probably where I'll be. That's why our Twitter is obnoxious. Speaking of Instagram, we're going to be doing our first giveaway of the year. Yeah, because we've gotten quite a big spike in listeners lately. We decided to celebrate by giving away 10 coffee cups. 10 whole coffee cups. So everybody's got a chance to win. There's 10 of them. You got a <laughs> chance. Come on. Everyone's got a chance to win. There's 10 of them. Okay, Oprah. <laughs> you get a coffee mug and you get a coffee mug. Yeah. So follow us on Instagram for details on the giveaway. Go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime and we'll go through all of the giveaways there. OK, thanks for thanks for listening. We're having such a great time seeing everybody show up and listen to our podcast. So we're happy that you guys are starting to like it. All right, buddy. Well, I will talk to you later. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Love you. Love you, too. Bye.